And if you would, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5? Matthew chapter 5. We've been studying through the Sermon on Your Mount, if you're new here. So we're continuing our series in Matthew. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, at the end of last year, one of our elders, Henry, got up and said that this was the last message you'd ever hear taught from paper. Nope. <laughs> uh, let's open the passage. We'll be starting in verse 17. Matthew five seventeen. And it says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever re- relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we just come before you and we open your word, would you give us wisdom just in how to take your word and apply it to our hearts and to our lives. Um, Holy Spirit, guide my words. Help me not add to what shouldn't be added to. Help me not diminish something that should not be diminished. But God, give us clear understanding as we want to hold this in high regard and high importance this morning. We just rely on you to speak to us and do a deeper work. We just pray and ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, the Sermon on the Mount, one of the longest passages of a recorded sermon that we have by Jesus, and one of the first, and it's a very famous passage that if you kind of look throughout the history of the Sermon on the Mount, kind of how the church for the last 2,000 years has interacted with this teaching, you come across a lot of different ways people take and apply that. Sometimes people would look at it and say, hey, is this just a form of higher legalism? Or is this just an idealistic statement that Jesus kind of raised the bar so high over this teaching in its entirety? Um, how are we to take, and, and how is our interaction? Are we to actually begin obeying this? Are we to actually listen and take Jesus seriously for what he meant? Do we follow it? Is this actually like the litmus test for what it means to be called a follower of Jesus? And for 2,000 years, the church has wrestled with these things because there's a lot of heavy statements being said here from Jesus. So as, as we move forward, it's always important we want to keep some things in mind as we study the Gospels. You know, the Gospels as a genre and Scripture as a literary genre, um, we always have to ask ourselves a few things. What, what is the author trying to communicate? Now, we have to remember that the, the Gospels aren't a straight chronological history uh, or a, a chronicle of how things happen, but rather they kind of approach events like this. This is what happened. This is what they mean through them. So we have somebody trying to communicate a message. So an example would be if we just had somebody kind of give a straight historical chronicle of Jesus' healing, we'd spend more time dealing with, on this date at this particular hour, Jesus healed this person. The end. 
but what, are the, what is the author actually trying to communicate through these actual events that happened? And Matthew here, he's speaking to a largely Jewish audience. We have to kind of keep that in mind when he uses these terms, why, what he defines, what he doesn't define. It kind of gives us the clues to how he's speaking. And he kind of uses these two main themes in this overall gospel. One is authority. Jesus as king, Jesus as Messiah, it started with, this is the lineage of Jesus. He fulfills this to be Messiah. He has the pedigree of this to be called the king, the coming king. And now we've moved into the Sermon on the Mount where he's using this idea of authority. Jesus has authority in his teaching. And also fulfillment, this idea of fulfillment, and we'll kind of move through that. This, the fulfillment is one of the key things to what we're about ready to cover here. And then also we want to keep in mind, what did Jesus himself teach? What's he communicating to us? It's a, it's a message from our Lord and Savior, the one we actually follow. We need to listen to what he's trying to communicate here. And it's really helpful when we look at the, the sermon as a whole to, to remember, what are these things that he's speaking of. One of the themes we're going to continue to hear is the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom. So the language here is always to be viewed through the lens of a king and a kingdom. We open the sermon with, blessed are you, happy are you. Quite literally, probably the, the accurate, deeper meaning of this, we use these words blessed or happy, but more fully, it's probably flourishing are you. Flourishing are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Flourishing are the pure in heart, more fully recognized who we are as a human being. See, Jesus said these things are matter of fact, so he's always speaking of this kind of original intent. What was God's purpose for man before the fall? These principles would have existed, and this is what it means to be more fully human, the way God intended and as we get to this passage, there's a difficulty. This is a very short section, and it's really dense. There's so many layers here. Each sentence kind of sparks a fire that goes off in a different direction. It raises more questions than we even have time to answer here. So we kind of have to walk carefully as we pull apart and as we study this passage. We need to fully bring in other texts, the full canon of Scripture to kind of give full dimension to what these verses actually mean. If we were to just kind of stop here, we'd be left with a lot of questions that we can never really answer. So recognizing that today, that this has been something that I have been wrestling through. There's certain things that I'm not even sure I fully understand or grasp the meaning of, but still this is God's Word, so we let it bear its full weight on us and do the work that it needs to do. So in verse 17, we just come out of this section of Jesus speaking about being salt and light. And he says, let others see your good works and give glory to your fathers in heaven. And immediately he, he shifts gears. He has this, this abrupt change. And he says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Think about this statement. It's almost like Jesus talking, it's almost like somebody asked the question, asked him a question, or maybe he kind of answers what they were thinking. 
Doesn't seem very consistent. He just roughly changes gear. Hey, don't think I've come to abolish the law. I've actually come to fulfill it. So let that statement sink in. How was this statement received among its listeners? Who is this guy? This is early in his ministry, most likely. Did he just say what he just said? I didn't come to abolish the law or do away with it. Who does he think he is? Because at a minimum, he's putting himself in the same category as the prophets and as Moses. You'd have to have some form of authority. He's not saying, well, I'm teaching something different and we're kind of just stepping away from the law. At a bare minimum, he's raising himself on the bar of Moses and the prophets. But we know it's actually a step above that. So the first question, what is the law and the prophets? What are are we talking about in context? Um, This statement could be used to refer to several different things. It could be used to refer to the Ten Commandments. It could be used to refer to the first five books, the Pentateuch. Um, It could be used more commonly to refer to all the Old Testament writings because he attacks the law and the prophets, so what we would call the canon of the Old Testament. Um, some people even use the statement in that time to refer to the, uh, the oral account or the tradition of the elders. Um, I don't think that's what he is talking about because later Jesus begins to push against that law. So simply put, we're talking about the whole Old Testament. If we want to kind of just really reduce it and keep it simple, Jesus is speaking about the whole Old Testament. I have come not to do away with it. This is what it is. I'm not abolishing it. Do not think I have come to abolish it or to do away with it. Now, it's helpful to think of who he's speaking to. There's two predominant viewers or listeners here. Let's put it that way. Um, We have one camp that would be the legalists, the people who very strictly follow the law to the letter as best as they can. And they want everyone to know that they do. They do this on this very outward way where you knew who these people were. They were so serious about it that you just knew who they were in the culture. And that would make up a big part of the audience. The other one would be kind of the minimalistic approach. Having kind of a smaller view of the law, not meticulously following every detail. Now, if we think about it, that's probably what makes up a big portion of the disciples. Even the writer of this gospel, Matthew, he was a tax collector. There's no way he was actually meticulously following the law. His occupation would have excluded him from certain things. He would have been outcast. Let's think of the other disciples, the the fishermen. These weren't polished religious people. So we have these two views, kind of the, the legalists, very heavy into the law, and the people who, yes, they are Jewish and they follow it, because that was part of being Jewish, you did follow the law. But it was very minimalistic to the approach. So, so how would these two camps kind of view this statement? Kind of the, the legalistic view would be like, wait, what, you support the law? That's, that's a good thing, we think. We, we, we like the law, that's, that's a great statement. But who do you think you are challenging it, saying that you've come to, come to fulfill that? Maybe the minimalistic view would be, oh, wait, we still have to follow all these rules? 
You know, the disciples kind of had a different view of what Messiah would be, and they didn't fully have a developed understanding of what Jesus was doing. Maybe they're hoping for something entirely new. How about us today? Do we think that the Old Testament has any bearing in our lives, apart from being just some historical content? A common theme that you hear is nowadays is, I really like the God of the New Testament, but I really don't like the God of the Old Testament. Right? And so we begin to have this dichotomy of there's a different God. He's just a different personality than he was back then. But the way God reveals himself to us, he says he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So how do these things join together? If we have a low understanding of the Old Testament, we're going to miss out on the character and maybe some truths of who God really is and how this statement should affect our understanding of God's word entirely, how we approach it, what what authority we actually give it in its totality, not just the books we like and the things that are easy to understand. See, the Old Testament is foundational. Jesus isn't coming to destroy that foundation. He says, I'm not here to abolish it, but I'm here to fulfill it. Verse 18 says this. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Kind of substantiating the fact. This would be a statement that can probably mean two things. Until heaven and earth pass away, he's either... Commentators either think that Jesus is referring to the actual end of earth as we know it, kind of has Peter or in Revelation how they speak about the old earth being consumed and the new one being made, that the law has that extendency. Or this is more uh, an idiom of saying something to heavily emphasize the fact of saying like, the law is going to pass away when hell freezes over. And that's probably more likely what's being communicated here. Jesus says, let me be clear. I'm not going to do away with the law and the prophets. So, so for us, like, do we need to follow the Old Testament rules? So honestly, if your first thought is, can I eat shrimp or not? If, if that's kind of where your mind immediately goes, I would propose that maybe we're asking the wrong question. We've we've missed something bigger. This this happens continuously where the scribes and Pharisees say, teacher, what about this? What about this? And they begin to nitpick these little rules. Yes, there is answers for them. Those are sometimes valid, valid questions, but we can easily miss the bigger thing that's happening here. And if we didn't have the rest of the canon of Scripture in the New Testament for Paul to kind of flesh it out, we'd kind of be stuck in this pattern. If we just stopped here, we'd probably end up thinking we all had to be Jews. And, and Paul furthers these ideas. Um, this gospel message is for the Gentiles also. They do not have to become Jews. And if we didn't have these writings, we'd kind of be stuck in this weird tension of, what rules do I follow? Are we just being included in this? And so we really need to look at the bigger canon of Scripture to get a fuller understanding to develop this. But Jesus says, until all is accomplished. What does he mean? All of it, not some. Meaning that this, God's going to accomplish all that he set out to do. 
the intent and the purpose of the law will be accomplished. Not one thing will be left aside. What was it purpose to do? So it begs the question, how does Jesus fulfill the law? And that's what we really need to spend the bulk of time. How does Jesus actually fulfill this? And we have to keep in mind, this isn't a plan B. This wasn't like Jesus shows up and says, what I established before just isn't working. We need to scrap it. I got a new plan. Totally doing away with the old one. That's not what's going on here. This is a continuation. Something else is happening here. And the answer we come to is multi-layered um, that kind of has some broad meaning and it has some very specific meaning. So kind of in the broader sense, we would say this. The true intent of the law and prophets and all scriptures to find their meaning in Jesus. All of scripture. Jesus himself says this. In, in John 5, 39, Jesus says this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. All scripture. What scriptures would you have been talking about? New Testament has not been written at this point. For speaking of the fact that there's eternal life to be found, they're probably looking at the rules. I follow the rules, and that's what's going to earn my salvation. He's like, no, that isn't the point. They bear witness about me. All of Scripture does. And so when we read God's Word, we want to see how we can find Jesus, the bigger story of what's being communicated. So we have the saying here at Anthem. It's on our website. It's on the walls all about Jesus. So this is quite literally how we approach the Bible. One big connected story that flows like a tapestry woven throughout all time. The story of rescue, the story of redemption, all brought together and culminated in the person of Jesus Christ. See, the law was not an end of itself. It's not to be just an absolute end, but it pointed to something greater. It pointed to something else. So all the rituals, all the rules, all the sacrifices, all the feasts, pointed to greater meaning. They're just shadows of things to come that will be later fulfilled and the meaning would be given much more depth. So one of the ways Jesus fulfilled these things was in doctrinal teaching, meaning that he was bringing full revelation to God's plan, God's rescue plan. Quite literally, he interpreted the law fully in truth the way it was meant to be interpreted. And he challenged the wrong interpretations. Remember what we just read in John. You were searching these for eternal life, but you missed the main point because they would have testified of me. So Jesus fulfills the doctrinal teaching. He also fulfills prophecy. The prophets. What is that? Theologian R.T. France says this. Fulfillment is the closest thing we can get to describing the overall theology and themed to the Matthew's whole gospel account. Fulfillment. Remember when we opened up and we started this series, Matthew seven times already has used these statements. Jesus did this to fulfill this. He said this to fulfill this. He's using that theme, fulfillment. 
And there has, and the prophecies have a, a, a distinct fulfillment, a direct fulfillment, rather. Um, and it has an indirect. So a direct would be like, this is what the Messiah would be like. Specifically, Jesus fulfilled this in the indirect. This is how God worked in the past, and this is the way God's working now through the person of Jesus Christ. So prophecy carries a lot of weight to be able to actually fulfill all of these things. So the author's highlighting Jesus fulfilling through prophecy. And when they said he came to fulfill all things, there would have been a prophecy from Jeremiah that would have perked their ears. Uh, Jeremiah 31. There's a particular prophecy. Jeremiah 31, verse 34. It says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when they took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. And after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. This prophecy highlighting something new coming, the new covenant. Well, it's not abolishing the old, but it's bringing a new thing, this new covenant where no longer are we following these rules written on stone, but now they're going to be moved to our hearts and where through the law where we can never fully attain forgiveness of sins, we can only kind of manage them. You're fully to be given to this new covenant forgiveness of sins, forever forgotten. They would have known these passages, but these passages would be fully realized in the person of Jesus, fulfilled. In verse 19 it says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of the commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, because of what happened before, because Jesus is the fulfillment, because this law is not going away, we're not setting it apart, we're not doing away with it, some of your, your uh, translations may say whoever breaks or whoever sets aside. ESV says whoever relaxes them. But this is a, a weighty statement. Kind of let it, let it sink in of what just was said here. Whoever relaxes one of the least of the commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Teaching others to do the same, to kind of put away. And do we do that? Do we kind of soften the impact of God's word and teach others to do the same? Listen to the language. We're, we're talking about something that's kingdom language. 
those that are in the kingdom of God. He's not speaking to those outside of it. And, and that's, that's a hard thing. And sometimes you come to the point, do, I want to be great in God's kingdom. How, how do I interact with that? That there's a possibility of us, when we begin to diminish God's law and its, and its real intent, that we begin to sow into some type of future that where we become least in his kingdom. That's kind of a scary thought. I've read lots of commentators, and they're all over the board on this, but sometimes it's just you let God's word be what God's word is. And we let it sit on us with its full weight and take it serious. It says, whoever relaxes this. Now, now for the legalist, the religious in that day would have thought Jesus was very laxed on the law. And we kind of know the whole story. He had a very relaxed view of the law, is what they considered. He didn't wash his hands before eating. He healed on the Sabbath. He ate with sinners. The people even hang out with. And, and they would kind of question, okay, what do you mean by this? You're very laxed on the law from our point of view. Jesus, you're the one telling us this? Really? And in verse 20 he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You will never enter. So unless your righteousness here on earth exceeded those above the Pharisees, you don't stand a chance. Now the Pharisees were the religious elite of that time. You know, they were the, the holy people. And not just the holy people, but they were the holy, holy, holy people. And they really wanted us to know that. So what would that make you think? One, it's, it's probably offensive to the Pharisees, to the scribes. But think about the minimalistic view. There's no way I can attain to that. See, in the culture where the religious elite were considered absolutely killing it at the law, all of a sudden the bar's completely raised. And Jesus kind of moves from here out in the rest of this sermon to bring full interpretation of the law. And it's basically this. Hey, you guys thought the bar was here? In reality, it's way up here. It's kind of like an iceberg where we applaud ourselves and think we've done well when we were able to measure the portion that we can see. But the reality of the iceberg, 90% of it sits underwater. And Jesus begins to point and, and dive at the deeper things, the things that cannot be seen. Matters of the heart. And we, we begin to realize that Jesus is dealing specifically with heart things, which the religious were mainly following things that were a facade on the outside. Oh, we tithe so well, we even tithe of our dill and mint and our herbs we want people to see that. Most of the things that you track of how they actually kept the law, it was very visible. But Jesus begins to deal with matters of the heart. 
neither of the views, legalistic or minimalistic, would help us inherit the kingdom of God. We kind of have to trust that God actually knew both of those views. From here on out, we're dealing mainly with the law being elevated, with heart issues. Probably from here on out, Christian, the message of, hey, thanks for coming. We're glad you're here. If you weren't offended this week, please come back next week and we'll offend you then. Because there isn't anything that Jesus doesn't touch on, on anger, on being materialistic, on dealing with our enemies, on, on, our, on our sacrifices and, and reconciliation through relationship. And it goes to extremes to say, like, I don't care if you walked 60 miles down to offer a sacrifice to me. If you have a problem with your brother, you stop what you're doing, you walk back the 60 miles, and you deal with that. Very heavy things. And God begins to show us how the law aligns correctly with his principles and the principles of the kingdom. The way things were meant to be, original intent before sin entered the world. So how would it make the listeners feel? What would be their reaction? Would it be contempt, anger? Would it be a feeling of hopelessness? I mean, how, how does that statement make you feel? That unless your righteousness exceeds those of the absolute religious elite, you can no way enter the kingdom of heaven. Maybe more accurately, you say, how should it make you feel? Kind of this predominant view in our society, if people have some idea that a God exists, is I go through life thinking that if my good slightly outweighs my bad, I'm okay. I mean, talk to people outside the church. That's a very predominant view. Well, I'm, I'm pretty good. I mean, I'm 52% good. That's good enough. You know, God's got to be pleased with that. And Jesus says, no, utter perfection. You, you have to by far exceed that. Seems that we're just left with this mark to attain that, to attain that is absolutely impossible. But the reality is it is impossible at least for us. Without the whole story, we're going to be left completely stranded, completely feeling without hope. Notice here in the sermon, it never talks about salvation, does it? We need the entirety of this story. And that's where fulfillment comes into the picture again. See, Jesus fulfilled the moral and legal demands. In the person of Jesus, his obedience to the law, not only did he reinterpret them in truth, but he lived and hit every mark that the law demanded. Where the law demanded perfectness, even when Jesus lays forth, he actually attained that and lived that. And Jesus also fulfilled the penalty of the law, by death on the cross, to deal with the issue of sin. See, he lived the life that we could not live. Remember, remember our prophecy in Jeremiah. A new thing's coming. A moving from the old laws written on these tablets to moving to their hearts to deal with the forgiveness of sin. See, sin is something that just isn't God just feels in a happy moon and says, I guess I'll just forgive you of your wrongdoing. 
It's all right, no, no problem. But there's something that actually, there has to be an exchange. The weight of sin is so great that it wasn't just a decision God made. Something had to happen. It had to be acted upon, and Jesus actually fulfilled the, the penalty because he is a just God. Justice demanded that somehow blood was shed. And that's the gospel. It's the good news of what we're even talking about. The fulfillment of all that came before, pointing to this person of Jesus. God's great rescue plan. If we stopped here, we just drown. But God in the gospel interjects itself when we needed it most. All the law, all the prophets pointing towards this. Since the beginning of time and since sin entered, the world was aiming at this. God's way to deal with the issue of sin that plagued us. And this new covenant, the good news, the gospel of the kingdom is what we call it, that there is forgiveness of sins offered for all who would repent and put their faith in Jesus. This was the message. This was the trajectory that we were on. And this was something that we couldn't attain because trying to fulfill these things by living to the law, we find ourselves falling far short. We have this thing called grace, a gift freely given to us that we did not earn in our own merit. And that's at the heart of the gospel at the heart of the kingdom of God, where Jesus fulfilled all of this in himself. Not based on our own merit, but it's a gift given to us who all who would call on his name. Now, if that doesn't stir up hope, I'm not sure what else will for you guys. If that doesn't stir up a heart of gratitude and joy, maybe we don't realize what we've been saved from. That no longer are you held here saying, hey, live up to this standard. And if you don't, sorry, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. But where we are helped, and Jesus said, I know you can't, but I can. And the Apostle Paul breaks out and more develops the idea of what we call justification by grace through faith. In his writings, he, he takes these ideas and more further expounds on them, that we are justified just as we never sinned. We are removing from the penalty of the law by simply believing in the accomplished work of Jesus, by repenting of our sins. And that's the gospel. That is the good news of the kingdom. And that's why we gather here, is it not? So where do we go with this now? The gospel is amazing. Grace is amazing. When we stand in grace, how do we approach these teachings moving here on out? Do we just say, hey, these are untainable, therefore I don't even bother trying? Is that our heart and attitude? Is that, is that the right thing? Do we not even begin to live these principles laid forth? But let me be very clear. We don't earn our salvation. We cannot earn our salvation through the law only by God's grace. But if these are kingdom principles, if these are things to point to what it means to be more fully human, if this is what God's moving and restoring all things to, how do we interact? Do we begin to follow? 
in this sermon, we, we just came out of the passage of saying we are salt, we are light. There are good deeds that are going to point to God's grace. The end cap of this whole sermon, it ends with, hey, people who actually listen to what I said and do them are wise. If you don't, you're like a fool who builds his house on the sand and great will be the ruin of you. So somehow we see that there has to be some form of interaction. There's kind of two camps in the church, and I think we're going to talk a lot about it uh, probably every week, where we have legalists. We call it legalism or grace. And I've noticed the shift in the church where they kind of separate farther and farther apart, where People who actually are obedient and follow rules of Jesus, it's like, oh, they're legalists. And we're talking extremes here. And then on the other side, we have the grace people. We're so enamored by God's grace that we can pretty much live the way we want because God's pretty thrilled with us. And, and I, I would say, some people say, well, you have to live with that in attention, but I don't think that's accurate either. They're so far apart that we just have truths there that are really not truths. It would be false. But if we, if we think about it, what is legalism? What's, what's the difference between legalism and actually somebody who actually follows out of obedience? See, legalism starts with the motive. Why do you do what you do? The motive of the heart. This is what Jesus is constantly getting at, the internal thing, the things not seen. What is your heart for obedience? Is it to gain something? Is it when we don't do something we think God has lost favor with us? Why, why are we obedient? Another common thing is for legalism is your bar is the neighbor next to you. If you look around, you think you're doing real well as long as you're doing better than the people sitting next to you. But that's not what it's meant to be. Jesus is our example. And the idea of grace or the loose grace I don't have to live under the law. I have license to live the way I want. Why not? God still forgives me. Isn't forgiveness just freely granted? But, but deep down inside, if we're like seeking to actively follow Jesus, we know that that is just not right. I think both are the wrong perspective and both are the wrong actually terms. The real argument here is legalism versus true obedience. And the difference comes down to pure heart motive. See, legalism makes you look really good to others, doesn't it? I'm disciplined, I have these spiritual things, and I post about it on Facebook. Let me tell you what I know about Scripture. If, our, if, our, if your goal is to make others amazed at you, well done, there's your reward. But true obedience flows from a totally different place. It should be our response to what the gospel truly is. Obedience flows from grace doesn't buy it. It never can. All that will lead to is frustration and you being worn out. If you're trying to be so disciplined to Jesus to earn something from him, it'll just leave you feeling empty. That's not what it was meant to be. So, so an example we can pull from that we've seen from the Old Testament would be the exodus of the people of Israel, how God worked. This is how 
got them out, what did he ask of them? Pretty much nothing. Trust me, right? And he saves them, and he does these mighty works, and he brings them out of the land of Egypt, sets them free even before any rules, even before the Ten Commandments are given. And then he says this, I am the Lord your God. I saved you. I set you free from slavery. This is what I've done. I have rescued you. This is how you should live because it will show me to all the nations. The Ten Commandments start with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It starts first with being saved before we even begin to interact with the law. And a lot of that's us. When we have been rescued and saved from something, we didn't have to do anything beforehand to earn that. But when we are part of God's kingdom, it's our response to that. Our response to grace. And, and throughout the Old Testament, when they would say, the writings would say, when your children begin to ask, why do you do these things? Why are you obedient? You would say, well, God gets mad when we don't obey. No. What does he say? He says, you're to point back, the Lord our God saved us and did a mighty work and saved us from the land of Egypt. I mean, what do we tell our kids? Hey, why do you do what you do? Is it, well, it's naughty. Makes Jesus sad. I mean, that's, that's kind of a, it's true in a smaller sense, but the reality is we've been saved from something. Jesus has rescued us. He's made us new, and we begin to follow him, and that is the reason we begin to live this way, distinct, but different. We live under different rules, different philosophies. It's not because we're so wonderful, but it's larger. We've not just been saved from something, but we've also been saved to something. Yes, we've been saved from the penalty of sin, but now what? It stops there. We lack the full expression of the intent of why God saved us. No more tablets and rules on stone, but in our heart. So we're to follow Jesus from the point of what he has done for us. The gospel should be this thing that just enamors us. The point by which we even engage in obedience. Another thing is obedience has, a, has every bit to do with authority. Well, why are we obedience? If we're obedience because of what Jesus has done in light of the gospel, another common problem is obedience has to deal every bit with authority. Meaning this, if we're part of a kingdom, whose authority do you submit to? We want to be part of God's kingdom, but we don't want to submit to anything. Who are we submitting to? Our own selves? These statements here were, were meant to show us that, hey, we were far more broken than we ever imagined. We're far more desperate than we even thought we were. But God, but the gospel of the kingdom has saved us. And if we truly follow Jesus as king, 
we have to accept that what God's standard, what God's standard is for moral and ethical things. Because if we begin to insert that, and if we get, begin to interpret that, that's self-deception. We have set ourselves upon the throne. And remember, this is kingdom language. This whole sermon. What king doesn't have authority? He wouldn't be a king if he did, didn't have authority. See, the problem isn't with God's plan. The problem isn't with the Old Testament, but sometimes it's that our view of grace, our view of the gospel is by far too small. If your view of God is a small one, why would you be obedient? When you begin to see the reality of what you've been saved from, it should stir and motivate something else. As a church, we've been laying forth, hey, we want to begin to be followers of Jesus. What is our motivation? The authority of Jesus and just realizing how great a salvation, how great a God we serve, that is our motivation. And would our lives begin to flow with gratitude in these things. May we, may we make that big. May we sing about it. May we remind ourselves daily because what about when we fail? Be sure that you will. Grace isn't just this one-time thing that like covered us back then, but every day we are in need of God's grace. Every day we are in need of his mercy. First John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them. Every day, we need to be teaching it to ourselves every day, reminding ourselves of the realities of what the gospel has done for us. The realities and in whose love and hands we stand. And from that, grace is what's going to actually flow the real obedience. Otherwise, we're just trying to please other people or trying to gain favor in some way from God. And that's something like the reality is we have proclivities as humans to act naturally go there. And so we have to fight for that if we don't make much of Jesus and remind ourselves continually what he has done for us, we will slip into those old ways and begin to earn God's favor, which we just can't. It's given to us. And the glory of the gospel, the righteousness that was needed was actually given to us. Not just forgiveness of sins, but that Jesus' righteousness was actually credited to our account. Yeah, and that's, that's, that is reason to rejoice. So would you stand with me, church? So as we close, a couple questions. There isn't a very necessarily a tangible thing to walk in, but maybe ask yourself these questions. Are you trying to earn God's favor? Are we using that as an excuse? Oh, I don't want to be a legalist, so we lack discipline. Let's not be a church who does that. What's our true heart motive for following Jesus, for following his commands? Are we, are we using grace to live worldly? Who do we follow? Whose allegiance 
Who do we give our allegiance to? If it's Jesus, then our lives need to be shaped and be radically different. And even remembering, what is our view of the Old Testament, of God's word in entirety? Remember, this is a continuing story of God's redemption plan. Let's not do away with these things. Yes, it arises questions that we can't answer in great length or detail here, but we want to hold on to these foundational things. And remember, this is our God who moved this way in the past, and he's still actively moving today. Are we walking as a people that actually belong to the kingdom of God? Salt and light. Remember that the gospel needs to be in the core of our culture as a church. It needs to be lived out towards others. We have been saved from this, therefore we act this way. Not only to each other, but even to the world. We'll to model that. So today my prayer for you, church, is that recognizing Jesus as the fulfillment and the gospel of grace. This great work that he's done, this new covenant brought about is a great and worthy thing. And in light of that, we respond to that. We begin to follow Jesus. So you pray with me. Jesus, help us as a people to have a greater understanding of your word. Help our view of you not to be that that is too small. Forgive us, Lord, when we diminish or take away from the realities of your grace, the realities of what we've actually been set free from. God, help us to fully walk in that. Lord, we want to be the salt, want to be the light. In this city, God, use these people. Fill them more full of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we know that your commandments are a good thing. They were there for our benefit for our flourishing, help us to hold to that. God, we thank you that you love us and you even stand with us when we fall and you pick us up and you have an understanding knowing how we work and how our minds wander. Jesus, bring our hearts back. Tune us to just the realities of the realities that you are doing here, the, the broader sense with eternity in mind. We ask and pray that in Jesus' name, amen.